Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Five months ago, we began this uh, study on the book of Revelation, and when I, I started, I told you the name of the book, Revelation, is the, the actual title in the Greek is Apocalypsis, which means the disclosure of that which was previously hidden. It doesn't mean the end of the world. That's not what the phrase means. So when John calls his book the Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, he's basically saying the disclosure of things that were previously hidden about Jesus. And that's an important re- uh, revelation, if I, may, if I may just review a little bit, because the author of Revelation introduced the book as a book that shared with the church things about Jesus Christ that had not been previously shared, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. Yes, it's a book of prophetic mysteries, and it likely holds great future importance for the world, but definitely it is a book about the person of Jesus Christ. It is a book about his relationship with us. It's stuff we won't find elsewhere. And there are mysteries in here that deal with the very issues that mankind is wrestling with, the very foundations of everything that's broken in humanity and in the world, and all the things that Christ has done and is doing to bring restoration. is definitely all of those kinds of things. John is on the island of Patmos. He gets caught up in this vision. He hears an angel of the Lord begin to speak to him. Then John gives him seven messages for seven churches. Or the Lord gives John seven messages. Some of those messages were pretty tough. Some, all of them were encouraging, but some of them were, gave a, were real corrective words that called upon Christians to repent and refocus. And that was a very important message, I think, that we can't forget. And then once we got through those, those seven letters, we began to see these, these several uh, visions We saw the vision of the seven scrolls. We saw the seven seals. We saw the seven bowls. Every time something was opened or poured out, John would see something new. Some of it was was pretty, you know, well, it was striking. It was. We've seen rebellion. We've seen battles. We've seen judgment. And, And throughout it all, the words of this book have echoed into events of history again and again and again in very striking ways throughout history, and we've talked about some of these. these, these Most of these prophecies have been fulfilled more than once, and yet we believe in many ways the prophecies have great future meaning as well because the Word of God is living and active, and it's fulfilled and fulfilled again. A prophecy isn't just static laying on a page. God's spoken it, and it's constantly creating. And we've also seen... In the last few pages as we studied, we saw justice restored. We saw the wicked removed. We saw the earth last week renewed. Even to the day that he creates a new heaven and a new earth in which we will live with glorified, sin-free bodies. That's in the book, too. Last week, we began to see this new city, the size, this, literally the size of the moon, about, about the cubic square footage of the moon amazing, in which we will live with glorified, sin-free bodies. We saw this new city where where it was full of industry and majesty and commerce, where saints of God have a role as future leaders. This is what the Bible teaches about eternity. As I said, it's not sitting on a cloud somewhere playing a harp. Actually, much of eternity is spent on earth, a new earth, as leaders in this 
future industry that we see, it, it's kind of hard to wrap our brains around, isn't it? So now we move to the final chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, right down the middle of the streets of the city. Now he's still describing this incredible vision of a city. He refers to the first thing he notices is the river of the water of life. You know, throughout, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, prophets often use the picture of a river. Of course, rivers, especially in ancient civilizations, if you think about the world of the Bible, you think about rivers like the Euphrates River. You think about the, where the first civilizations of earth were planted. You think about the, the River Nile, where, where, where incredible civilization was built along in the ancient world. For that matter, you think about the, the importance of the River Jordan to, to Israel. It, it, of course, has practical meaning because it, in, in, in the natural world, it provides water. But, but often in Scripture, we see rivers as an expression of meaning joy or provision or peace or richness. And you find Isaiah prophesied visions of it. Zechariah did. Ezekiel. And Jesus, of course, promised us that we would have an internal river of life. So this imagery is used again and again in Scripture. Now, we know that the, the river Jesus spoke of is spiritual, but here it's almost like the spiritual meets reality. And in this eternal Jerusalem, the reality of that which we know in the Spirit is actually physically manifest into the world that we live in. The psalmist in Psalm 46, of course, said this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She'll not be moved. God will help her at the break of day. There is again. Life is dependent on water. You and I can go 40 days without food, but typically for water, three or four maybe. And the water of life speaks of our need and our thirst for God. We're not made to live without living water any more than we're made to live without water. It just doesn't work. In this city, this river flows down the, the main street that's described as a street of gold. John's first struck with the fact that it's clear as crystal. It was interesting, that phraseology. He was stunned by its beauty. He was stunned by its purity. He, he described it as coming right from the throne. You know, Ezekiel had a vision in Ezekiel 47 of a river that was flowing from the temple of Jerusalem all the way to the sea. And because of that prophecy or that vision that Ezekiel had, and whether it's physical or literal, there's, you'll find some teaching. Some people believe that in the millennial reign that there'll be literally a river that flows from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean. Who knows? I, I, we, we don't know that. But if it does, even that is just a preview of this river that's happening after that season after that millennial reign. And it says here, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The Bible began with a tree of life, didn't it? Our condition began. We, man was allowed in those days to eat of it until the fall, and then man was not allowed after sin to eat from that. Once he ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he was removed from the presence of the tree of life. And now here, talk about the restoration of all things, we see the tree of life again. John describes the landscape of the city, but it's kind of hard in the Greek to, to actually translate it precisely 
because John may be describing a, a, uh, a large street with a river flowing down the middle and then one large tree whose roots are all in the river, or he may be describing a series of trees on either side of the river. So you'll sometimes see artists paint it differently like this. It, it, it's, the, the language itself doesn't specifically, it's general enough that it could be either. Um, but, but here what we know is there is a river of life and there is a tree or trees of life there on the side. And seeing this, of course, obviously means the restoration of all things. So then he says that each tree yields its fruit every month. Now, again, this is a loaded expression. Here we have, it's the new earth, right? The old earth has already passed away. It's a new Jerusalem. And yet there's an indication of time here. Each, it yields its fruit in season. So apparently, even in this age, heaven will still mark time. We may not be subject to it in the same way on that side of eternity, but there's seasons of some kind, right? And some people ask if we, if we eat in heaven, well, I mean, Jesus was resurrected and he ate, he enjoyed food, and obviously angels ate with Abraham, and there's this thing called the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So whether we need to eat or not, we get to eat, praise Jesus. And here's this fruit... <clears throat> Good news, guys. Good news. We get to eat. And so, uh, clearly, there's, there's fruit of the tree of life that we will get to partake of. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Whoop, there it went. Why do the nations... Well, speaking of healing, woo! No, I just need super glue. Why do the nations... Yeah, just set it down. It'll be fine. It'll be good. Why do the nations need healing? Stop and think about that. All right, all of the bad stuff's happened. Why do nations need healing at this particular point in time? Well, it, it, you, you learn if you look at what the word is. The Greek word there is therapian. It's where we get our word therapy from. It, it simply means health giving. So in a real sense, these leaves add to the health of those people who are living in the New Jerusalem. It's, at this point, he's already wiped away all tears from eyes. He's already done all of those kinds of things. So it's not like they're a response to sickness as much as they add to the health and the therapy and the life of those people. So here we have a street, we have a river, we have a tree or trees, we have fruit, we have leaves. So are these pictures of heaven literal or symbolic? Yes. Um, probably both, but consider this. What if it was impossible for John as a human seeing this, seeing this other dimension, this other reality? How, how, could, he, how could he describe it to us? I mean, it, it's like seeing an alien landscape in which everything is so completely different. You don't have any frame of reference to describe it. And so, so John is, is seeing this and this looks like this, and this looks like this. But so, so I basically would say that these are, these are connected to the reality they're expressing. The words he uses, God caused him to choose those words. So they're, 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 even if it's spiritual, it's connected to reality. So what John saw may or may not be exactly like a river we would have on earth, but when we see it, we're going to go, there's the river. There it is. Verse 3 says, no longer will there be any curse. Wow. In the New Jerusalem, the curse is gone. You know, since the fall, it's hard for us to imagine a world that's not under a curse. 
since the fall of man, the effect of the curse is described in Genesis 3, has been in the earth. Everything from sorrow and pain and sickness and disease and injustice and everything, for that matter, pain in childbirth, the fact that we have to work for a living, all of these kinds of things are all a result of the curse, right? The, the futility and the frustration and the vanity, vanity, it's all vanity, as, as Solomon said. All of those kinds of things as man struggles for existence. And most of all, death, all gone. You know, even during the millennium, if we take the millennium literally, as we described last week, went into some detail about what those three different positions are, but, but, but if we believe in a literal thousand-year millennial reign, even during that millennial reign, you know, there's still sickness. There's still, I mean, it's a whole lot better, but we're still born flawed, but not anymore. All of that is done. In the new heaven and the new earth, all curse is done away with. And instead of the curse, we find these words, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Let all God's people say, hallelujah. That's good news. This is a relationship that you and I will have with God the Father and Jesus his Son on that throne in New Jerusalem, and we'll be there. And where identity will be as beloved servants, we'll serve meaning we'll have jobs, we'll have something to do, we'll have purposefulness and amazing productivity. We're not laying around on clouds again, and it'll be the best job you and I ever imagined. <laughs> not the work of the life, this life that many times can be frustrating, good days, bad days. No, the curse is gone, and God is going to set you free to do things that you can't even wrap your brain around right now. And best of all, they will see his face we will see his face. Heaven will be a place where God's people see his face, a place of intimate face-to-face -face relationship with God. Moses even couldn't see the face of the Lord. But everyone there in that city will see his face. <clears throat> the great expositor Charles Spurgeon said this, talking about the passage, by which I understand two things. First, that they shall literally and physically with risen bodies actually look into the face of Jesus. And secondly, that spiritually their mental faculties shall be enlarged so that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character and cry of Christ so as to understand him, his work, his love, his all in all, as they have never understood before. So because of Jesus, even now we have a, an ability to see something of his face when we come into worship. It's a little different, okay? As, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we, as we come face to face in our relationship with Jesus, and we sing songs like, show me your face, Lord. We're, we're doing that in a figurative sense. We see his glory. We see maybe even his Shekinah glory. If we if we are fortunate in this life to have actually experienced and seen a visible manifestation of his glory, but at the very best, that's the most we're going to be able to hope for in these forms, not then. We can see him face to face because there's been nothing in that day that will keep you from seeing Jesus. You will be able to see him clearly because sinful flesh will be done away with. You will see him clearly because you aren't going to be worried about the things that you walked in here worried about. You will be able to see his face clearly because 
everything between you and him, which in a sense is already done away with, but then even in the physical realm it will be done away with. I love what 1 John 3 says. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. When he talks about, you know, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And then he says this, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then the next thing he says is incredible. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, if we keep our eyes on this promise, that we are going to be face-to-face with him in that city, if we keep our eyes on that ultimate goal, by the joy of this promise, saints of old kept themselves pure. They didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, gosh, i got to struggle against sin today. <sighs> okay, I'm tempted, but I'm really going to try. No, no, no. It's by the promise of knowing what we're made for ultimately. It's the joy of looking forward to that day. It's the, the thrill of experiencing his grace and knowing that I am going to stand before him face to face. He says, the, the joy of that, beholding how much he has loved you and the promises that he's given you, guess what? When you have that hope in you, it, it's a purification process. You go, <laughs> that's not even tempting, y'all. <laughs> Forget it. I have, a, I have a purpose. I have a calling. I'm made for more than that. And when you understand that, it's very different. As it says in Proverbs elsewhere, it says that um, where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. You know, there's a vision and purpose keep us on the pathway of God in ways that legalism doesn't. When we understand, it's not about, okay, i got to do this because God's going to slap me upside the head. It's, it's not it. It's It's because of who he has made me to be and who he is in me now and my future. I can't possibly go down that road. Amen? It says here, his face, his name shall be on their foreheads. Heaven is a place where people, I mean, I don't, you you know, God. I, I don't think it's like that, but I think that it's so evident when you look at the face of the resurrected, renewed, glorified bodies that we will be in that we will be clearly identified as his. It's, it's like he took a marker. It's, it's so obvious who you are. It's so obvious his glory in you. There will be no doubt you belong to him. Verse 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow, so much in that little verse. First of all, eternity will be a place where there's no darkness. The light's not artificial. It's not even from the sun. God himself is the light. Again, this is kind of a restoration of God's design. In Genesis 1, there in one second verse, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness some of the very first verses that appear in all of Scripture, right? Here God created light. Now, some people have been tripped up because they, God's creating light on the first day, and he doesn't create the sun until day four. Has that ever tripped you up? You went, wait. Um, okay, let me explain it to you. It's pretty simple, actually. 
on day one, God did not create a source of light. God created light. And there's a big difference. God created what we call the electromagnetic spectrum, right? I mean, you think, think high school physics. I mean, the electromagnetic spectrum is, is, is gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet rays, infrared, radio waves. God created radio, by the way, when he said, let there be light. It's true. All of that stuff is, oh, we're just talking about different frequencies along what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. Visible light is just a part of that, okay? So in a real sense, God is creating the physical and spiritual concept of light when he says, let there be light. Not just a single source of light, okay? And so uh, the, he established physical and natural realm principles on that day. And, and, and he separated there in Genesis light from darkness. Interesting. But see, now the Lord again is the single, the source of life and light and restoration has come. And this is the image that John is seeing, okay? It's not even necessary to have a source of light. He is the light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Look at that. Heaven will be a place where God's people enjoy an eternal reign. That's fascinating. In contrast, by the way, to the limited reign that we have during the millennium, I mean, God's people are going to be involved in then, but this is a place where it never, never ends. So the Bible opens with the concept of paradise lost. Man's created. He's having fellowship with God. He's in the garden. And the Bible closes with this concept of paradise regained. See, it's a continual story. Some people say, here's the Old Testament, here's the New Testament. No. God created a continual story throughout what we know as the canon of Scripture from the beginning to the end. Paradise lost, paradise regained. Intimacy, all the things that were lost, even things like the river, <laughs> the tree of life, uh, the curse, intimacy with God, reigning. Adam was called to reign, wasn't he? Ah, suddenly man's reigning again. Now you understand why, why he said in the previous chapter, the Lord himself spoke from the throne and said, I'm restoring all things. Here we're seeing that incredible, powerful restoration right here in this vision that John has seen. In verse 6, I love what he says next. The angel says to John, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. What John had just seen was so amazing, so mind-boggling in its perfection that the angel felt compelled to say to John, <clears throat> that's real. Okay, what you're seeing, it's trustworthy, it's true. Because don't you know, it's just a frail human for John. This was amazing. Then it says this, then the Lord, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. First of all, what an amazing thought that the Lord, in his mercy, would make sure that his servants, you and I, knew these things. And he used the phrase, that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. And some people look at that and go, now I'm struggling, because that's not true. It's been 2,000 years. Well, two points on that, if I may. The first, time to God is a very different thing than time to you and me. That's the first thing. He dwells outside of it. But more to the point, 
the Greek word that is rendered into English, I am coming soon, is taku, which is actually better translated and is elsewhere, by the way, translated by surprise or suddenly. In fact, in the King James Version, it says, I come quickly. He's describing the manner of which he's coming, not the timing from which that word was spoken to how quickly it is till he actually does it. When he comes, it's going to be fast. That's what he's saying. Still, I, I think it's fair to say that ever since these words were released to the body of Christ, the church has expected Jesus' soon return. So were they wrong? Did Jesus mislead them? No. They're not wrong, and they weren't misled by Jesus. God wants and desired to keep all generations expectant, watching, and ready. I'll quote from it in a little bit, but there's actually, you know, Jesus describes the, the wicked servant who says, my Lord delays his coming. You know, you and I have fickle hearts. Let's be real. And the Lord has always seen fit to tell his servants, look, be watching and waiting. You don't know the hour. And you know what? Some people say, well, do you think he's going to come back in, uh, in, in 100 years, the next 100 years? And my response to that is real simple. Well, you and I are going to see him before then. So we need to be watching and ready, don't we? So is his word to us, be watching, be ready. You do not know at what hour your Lord is coming. Is that valid for you and me? Was it valid for the saints at AD 98 or whenever John's writing this, right? Yes, it was. It was true then, it's true now. This is a valid word from the Lord. Every generation of believers needs to be waiting and watching and anxiously expecting his return for our certain good and because he's commanded it. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy in this book. Interesting. That blessing reminds us that prophecy is a word to keep, not just a topic to talk about over dinner. Prophecy is a word to embrace and keep. Interesting. We're called to not just know the word of the Lord. We're called to do the word of the Lord, to live in a way that's applying it every day. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. He's, he's giving his testimony. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, this is the second time John's done this, where he just got overwhelmed. In, in Revelation 19, 10, John was overwhelmed, and he bowed before an angel to worship because he's like, this is just so much. And he starts to worship. And in the same way, then as now, the angel reminded John, no, only God is to be worshiped. And you and I are players on the same team, along with everyone who, by the way, keeps the words of this book. Are you and I those who keep the words of this book? Yeah, we are. So this is the point that the angel's making here, okay? No created being is ever to be worshipped. Angels worship Jesus, not each other. By the way, this is one of the major issues why 
in the in the in the Middle Ages and during the Reformation, Catholics and Protestants split was because there was such a sense that um, that you know we needed to not worship any human, any saint, and well, and Sice in his great commentary on Revelation, he said this: if it was wrong to worship this glorious heavenly messenger and and through whom came forth the very voice of Jesus, how could it be right to worship and pray to the Virgin Mary, who is assigned no dignity or such office? Now, Sice is obviously messing with some people, isn't he? He's, he's expe- but the point is, that he said, the impulse and the intention may be devout and good, but it is a great mistake. Well said, right? Okay. So the angel literally says to John, do not do that. Don't worship me or any other created being. Only worship God. Verse 10, then he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, I think the first part of the, of the passage is pretty explanatory. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay, John? This is something that needs to be shared and needs to be disseminated. It's the second part that I think trips people up. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him as vile continue. Is he saying, just let him go to hell? Just let live and let die. Is he saying that? I once heard a pastor who was preaching from uh, Ephesians 4.28. I heard a story about it. I didn't hear it myself, but heard a story about a pastor who was preaching from Ephesians 4.28 when it says, let him who stole steal no more. Let him work with his hands. And afterwards, there was this kind of local scoundrel that had showed up at the church that morning, and he came up to the pastor and said, pastor, you're saying that verse all wrong. You put the comma in the wrong place. That should read, let him that stole steal no more. Let him work with his hands. So sometimes people hear what they want to hear instead of what the verse is actually saying, don't they? So what is the angel saying here? He, he's speaking of the words of this prophecy and their impact. He said, don't seal it up, right? And that's what he's saying. Don't seal this up. This is the final words of the Bible. John may not have known it, but the angel of the Lord did. This was the close of the apostolic message coming into the earth. This is the close of the canon of Scripture. This prophecy has revealed the end of all things to mankind. The final word has been delivered. And the angel said, and if this isn't enough, there's no hope. There's not a greater persuasion coming than this. The people of God have had God's gospel and God's prophecy delivered to them. The church age has become, there's not another one coming. And if the warnings of this prophecy and of this book aren't foundation enough in your life to be sufficient, there's really nothing more to say. We're done. So present the truth of what God's word is saying, and mankind is going to choose his destiny from here on. That's what the angel of the Lord is saying to John in this situation, okay? The word has been presented. The canon has been expressed. You're either going to embrace it and live the life of walking with God or not. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And again, this, this is not describing the chronological timing, but the speed and suddenness of his coming. His message, once again, is be ready. 
his warnings of the Lord of the house coming and, and the, finding the servants distracted, right? You know the passage? Uh, the, the Lord and the, the warnings of the, the, the Lord of the house who left talents for his servants, right? Gave one ten, one five, you know, one two, right? And, and, and then he came back expecting a return on those things. All of these things are messages to you and to me. The Lord has invested into you and to me. And then he says in that passage, he talks about the, when he comes back and he, he says, you know, my master has delayed his coming and he goes to mistreating the servants. And when Jesus is telling this passage, he says, when the son of man comes, will he find faith? Wow. You want to know what his heart is? So when I come for them, what will they have done with what I gave them? That's for you and me to respond to. I think so much of the time we get, we, we get into these theological debates on grace versus works and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's all grace. But the point isn't whether we please God or we earn points with him or we earn standing with him by our actions. It's a real simple thing. When he has given us this incredible grace, he has forgiven us. He's called us his ser servants. We don't, we don't respond to that um, by ignoring it. If we really have faith, we'll respond. We'll go, you're kidding me. This is so good. It will create a changed life that causes us to want to respond unless we're not walking with him. That's why James said, you show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by what I'm doing. The response to grace is, wow, this is awesome. What can I do, God? As it says in Ephesians, it says that, you know, for it's by grace you've been saved. It's not works. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. It's all one breath, isn't it? It's not grace versus works. It's, it's all this all grace, and our response to him is saying, Lord, when, I, when you come, I want you to find faith. Verse 13, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He reminds us of who he is once again. And if we really understand and we really understand and know who Jesus is, we won't have any trouble getting ready for his return. And it is usually, it is usually as we've gotten a skewed view of who he is that we start living in a way that's not preparing for his return, because we get confused. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Wow. Some versions say blessed are those who, who keep their commands because there's only two letters difference in the Greek manuscripts. The most reliable manuscripts literally translate, blessed are those that plunge or wash their stoles, now, the stole was a Greek robe of dignity. It was like a Greek robe of honor. And it's almost like we see this picture where you currently have, unbeknownst to your human eyes, a white robe of dignity that has been given to you. He's, been, he's given you already this robe of righteousness, right, of dignity. But it's clear that we have a responsibility to it, to, to see that that robe remains washed, cared for, Flesh, freshly plunged, as one commentator said, 
freshly plunged beneath Calvary's flow. He has given us a white robe. We care for it. It's interesting that even in those Greek manuscripts with the two letters transcribed differently, he talks about keeping his commands. So if you think about it, the meaning is the same. So this is an incredible example of how even when there's, you know, sometimes in a couple of the different texts, there's a, <laughs> there's a, uh, there might, might be a difference in some of the old manuscripts. Even there, the words preserved. As I've said many times, uh, we could recreate almost the entire Bible just with the fragments of, that were written in the first two centuries of the church that remain. It's pretty amazing how Jesus' prophecy that not one jot or tittle or, or one dot or stroke of the pen, would be a better way to say it in English today, would be, it will be taken away. I mean, he has carefully guarded over the, the manuscripts of Scripture. It's really quite, quite amazing. So how do you keep your robes washed? You keep his commands. Verse 15, outside, outside of the city, outside of the kingdom, outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There's a sobering scripture. Again, in eternity, we see two destinations, the new Jerusalem and not, which would be the lake of fire. If you're welcome in the city as you travel earth, heaven, and possibly the most, or you're either, you're either there or you're in the lake of fire. Now, I notice it says here, outside are all the dogs. Sorry, those of you who thought dogs went to heaven. It's very clear. Just do the best to make Rover's life as good as you possibly can because he's toast when he dies. Um, sorry, that is not what it means whatsoever. Um, actually, uh, it, 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 it's not literal dogs. The expression is a common, common Greek expression that means people who are extremely immoral people who live an indiscriminate, immoral lifestyle is basically a lot of what we talked about last week, that whole concept of, uh, of that, uh, that God has basically his design and perversion, and there's really nothing in between. Right? So, but those who are extremely immoral, the expression is dogs. Verse 16, I, Jesus, sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Now, this is like Jesus' personal signature. At the end of Revelation, this is amazing. Jesus is authenticating this entire book. He is verbally signing Revelation for us. Um, I mentioned Sice in his Apocalypse. He, he describes it this way. He said, Thus, the very God of all inspiration and of all inspired men reiterates and affirms the highest authority for everything that is herein written. Either then this book is nothing but a base and blasphemous forgery, unworthy of the slightest respect of men, especially unworthy of a place in the canon, or it is the most directly inspired and authoritative writings given. Amen. So Jesus said here that the book of Revelation is written to the churches. It's for all believers, okay? It's for all believers, not, not for an elite few. And he calls himself the root of, and the offspring of David. What a fascinating term. This is, the, the, this is his messianic title. He, it shows that Jesus is both the creator of David and the descendant of David. Think about that one for a minute. You'd be going home going, wow. He is the creator of David and the descendant of David. You know, Jesus confounded the Pharisees once, and, uh, and this is in Matthew 22. Let me show this to you real quick. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And Jesus said to them, How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And here, Jesus has settled the whole thing. I am David's creator, and I am his descendant. This is who I am. What a powerful thought. And he calls himself the bright morning star. Here's another messianic title from the Old Testament. I actually find it in Numbers 24. And, and something that, by the way, was already proclaimed earlier in, in, in chapter 2. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. The spirit and the bride say, come. The call of the Holy Spirit on earth is echoed in the voice of his bride, who is the church. The Spirit is at work in the world, and the church is at work in the world, in together saying, come, come. you got a dual invitation here. In one sense, this is the, the heart cry of the Holy Spirit and the healthy believer who's longing for Jesus to come, right? We want to be with him, not just for how good life can be here. We want to be with him. But there's also an invitation from the Holy Spirit that's going out into the earth. As he's closing out this word, here's this powerful invitation going out into all the earth, the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of the church that says, are you thirsty? Come. Are you thirsty? Come. Oh, how often is this a picture that Jesus spoke incredibly to that woman at the well, if you knew who you're talking with. You'd have asked him, I'd give you water. You'd never thirst again. Oh, the promises of Scripture. And this voice that's going out into the earth that we, by the way, you know, the Spirit works with the bride. The Spirit and the bride are proclaiming this. And by the way, it says, whoever desires can come. But by the way, it's only the Spirit that draws them. And, and here's why this is important. There's no greater tool of evangelism than intercession. This is, I don't like to have time for this tonight, but I'm going to say it briefly. One of the things that we've taught over the years in this church is the importance of when, when you have an evangelistic plan. Uh, we taught a whole principle for years called the prayer of three, in which we'd say, I want you to pick three people and get together with th some other people. And, and a group of three of you are going to each pick three people, and then every day, you're going to intercede for that lost soul. And then once, once a week you get together and you pray together in unison for everybody on your prayer list, the three that you're praying for. Now, there's people in this room and there's many people we know of in this community that were reached during this, this season in which we really emphasize this. A lot of people. Because why? It is the God of this age who blinds people from being able to receive the gospel. And when we combine our intercession and evangelism together and we pray, what happens is the Spirit opens the eyes of those that need to be opened. So there needs to be a marriage, however you do it, of intercession and evangelism because the Spirit needs to be invited to do the work and to begin working on the heart. It is absolutely remarkable, the testimonies and stories, if you will pray and seek God and declare God's Word over somebody's life that you're interceding for, and then in the process, the right moment, present the message. It does an amazing work, okay? So 
The Spirit works with the bride. There's a sermon in there somewhere. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is an open invitation. And we can accept the invitation or we can decline it. I'll tell you something else. I love the fact that he says, whoever desires, whosoever in some version. Anyone who desires salvation with Jesus Christ can take the water of life freely. Some may say, well, I, I, don't, I don't understand all the things. I, don't ha- I haven't figured out Christian theology and doctrine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't say he who understands. It says whoever is thirsty, let him take of the water of life. Somebody may say, well, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel anything. It doesn't say whosoever feels. It says whoever is thirsty, let him take of the water of life. Someone could say, I don't know that I can live this way. Our pastors told his testimony many times, and one of the, the impediments was, I don't know that I can live like that. How could I possibly live like a Christian? It doesn't say, whoever has the strength to leave a, lead a good life, come and take this water. That's not what it says. Some say, I'm not worthy. It doesn't say those who are worthy. It says, whosoever. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Mark this, sinner. It says, whosoever, and that's a big word. Whosoever, there is no standard. It is of any height, any side, little sinners, big sinners, black sinners, fair sinners, sinners double-dyed, old sinners, aggravated sinners, sinners who have committed every crime in the whole catalog, whosoever. That's why Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. It's really simple. If you desire his salvation, receive, come, take. What an amazing and simple message we've been given. It's not complicated. We've been given the most amazing, cool, incredible news that the world has ever heard. We get to share that. Amen. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) I think the rest of the world's religions can be summed up in the idea that you have to bring something unto the gods or you have to bring something. But, but, But Jesus is saying, look, come take what I'm giving you. What a difference, huh? Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which is described in this book. Wow. Now, in some, most of the red letter editions, those words are black. And most people believe that maybe John was saying this. Some uh, commentators actually believe that this was actually Jesus speaking here, um, but regardless, it's authoritative. If anyone takes away, there is a high price to pay for tampering with this word. And first of all, the, the book of Revelation, but Scripture in general. And if there's any sign of the days that we live in that, that's concerning to me, it's how people have become cavalier and casual with the Scriptures. Saw not too long ago someone uh, posted something on, on Facebook. It was a Christian who said, <clears throat> don't ever say it's clear the Bible, the Bible clearly says, because the Bible doesn't clearly ever say anything. And I went, ah. you can imagine I had a reasoned and thoughtful, loving response. <clears throat> Not. You know, don't trust anyone and woe to any man who diminishes the authority of Scripture. God's Word is God's Word. God's Word is clear. It is not hard to understand. We are hard-hearted. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Let us apply our hearts to understand His Word. 
because he longs to reveal it to us. Amen? It can be understood by men. Verse 20, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming soon to the very end. This book is emphasizing readiness and watchfulness. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Some versions say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And with this phrase, John uses the uh, Greek equivalent of an Aramaic expression that um, was well-known in the ancient church, Maranatha. The, 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 the believers greeted each other with Maranatha. Um, it, it, in, in a, it's actually recorded one time in Scripture in Aramaic. It's in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Paul actually inserts in the original text that phrase, uh, Maranatha. But most of your English versions read, come, Lord Jesus. But the original text actually has the Aramaic term. Uh, it's uh, obvious in some early Christian writings that it was very, very common. I won't get into that. But it's not an accident that that was the greeting that the early church gave to each other. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's the cry of the heart. And then there's final words. And the final words of the book of Revelation and the final words in all the Scripture we'll close with tonight is verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, Paul used that phrase over and over and over in the final word of his letters in, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians. It's not just words. If you get anything out of it, remember this, grace covers us. The very, isn't it funny? Have you ever thought about it? the very last words of Malachi, which into the old covenant ends with a curse? Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And the very last words of the, all the Scripture end in grace, which is the foundation of eternity. It was grace that saved Abraham. It was his faith that created grace to be given him, right? So Scripture says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And there's this continual story from Genesis all the way to the end of this book of God's grace to us. No accident that he ends with that very word, the grace of the Lord Jesus be on God's people. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.